Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. In the previous program, I was explaining the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in light of Galatians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. In Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, it says, And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And in the previous program, I explained that there was the promise that was given to Abraham, and that promise was that God would provide the Messiah who would restore the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam. But before he did that, I explained in the previous program that he answered a question and he resolved a problem that needed to be resolved before he would restore the Holy Spirit. And that problem was, do we live according to the knowledge of good and evil or do we not live according to the knowledge of good and evil? That was the problem that caused the fall of humanity and this needed to be resolved before he resurrected humanity, restored humanity to himself. This would have to be resolved. Otherwise, there would be a risk that mankind would fall again. There would be a substantial risk. If Jesus did not die for all of the sins of humanity, if he did not do that, then when the spirit of life was restored to an individual, they would be at risk because if they sinned, they would lose the spirit of life that was given to them according to the law of sin and death that God established in the Garden of Eden. And so it was necessary for our God to accomplish both things, the crucifixion and the resurrection. He needed to accomplish those things in order, in order to resolve the problems that existed between us and our God. The two problems were, do we live according to the knowledge of good and evil, and that we are spiritually dead. He resolved the issue of how do we live by showing us that there was no way we could live according to the knowledge of good and evil and that our only hope was his mercy and forgiveness. He provided that for those who are willing to receive it and for those who are not. Well, there's nothing more he can do for them. So this is what I was explaining in the previous program. What I would like to do is proceed into verse 19. In verse 19, it says, what purpose then does the law serve? What was the law given for? What was its purpose? If it was not given in order to show us how to live, then what was it given for? Now, in the previous program, I explained that it was given for a number of reasons. It was given for its prophetic inferences. It was given for its foreshadowings. It was given for a number of reasons. But in addition to that, and probably the most important reason, was that it was given in order to show us that we couldn't live that way that we have a need for the mercy of God. So what purpose then does the law serve? It was given in order to show us that we have a need for the mercy of God. How would we know that we 
have a need for the mercy of God because it shows us that we have sin, that we have transgressions. In addition to that, it stirs up more sin, more transgressions. I will explain that in just a moment. In verse 19, again, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of the mediator. So to begin with, I'm going to explain this time period between the giving of the law and the coming of the Messiah. I'm going to begin with that, and then I will talk about the continuation from the time that the Messiah came and today. Now, between the time that the law was given and the coming of the Messiah, the law was given to define sin. It defined sin. People had the opportunity to live by the law, and we have an extensive history that has been documented that shows that nobody can do it, that no one can live according to the law so that we can see that an individual has a need for the mercy of God. Now, to say that it was given for transgressions or because of transgressions, to say that it was given because of transgressions can be read in a couple of different ways. The first way is to say that it was given because people were sinning and we needed a way to deal with the sin that people were committing. That's one way to look at it. It was given because of transgressions in the sense that we needed to have some way to resolve the sins that were being committed in the nation of Israel. And the resolution, of course, was either sacrifice, restitution, or execution. If we needed to, we would just simply execute people. It was given because of transgressions until the seed would come, in the sense that it provided us with a way of dealing with the sins of humanity. Now, we could also look at this from the point of view of after the Messiah came and forward into today. We could look at it from that point of view, that people are still sinning. We still need a way to deal with sin. So certainly we can look to the law and we can say sacrifice, restitution or execution. We can do that. It can certainly be applied in the same way today as it was back then. So this is one way that we could read verse 19, that it was given, it was added because of transgressions in the sense that it provides us with a way of resolving the transgressions that people would commit, the sins that people would commit against each other. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to understand that the law was given not only to show us that we do have sin, but also to stir up more sin Within us, And I explain this very well in the verse-by-verse study I did on the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 7, for example, when Paul talks about coveting, he explained, just as an example, that he would not have known what it was to covet until the law said, don't covet, and then it stirred within him every covetous desire. It will provide you with many things, many things that you never thought about doing, that you never imagined committing. It will provide you with lots of things, lots of sins to think about. And when you do, there is an opportunity for you to desire such things and you may commit that sin, if not in your flesh, definitely in your heart. That is one example. There are many ways. You know, there's the natural rebellion of humanity, that people will naturally rebel in the sense that if you tell someone that this is what they should be doing, they might just simply 
not do that, just to show you that you're not God and that they can decide for themselves. That's one way that people might experience an increase of sin in their lives. There is the coveting example that I just gave, that it will stir up more ideas concerning what you might do. But in addition to that, what happens when you believe that you have found a way to live in obedience to the commandments? Well, now you have a different kind of sin because you're deceiving yourself, maybe some other people, but definitely not everyone. You will then have the sin of religious pride. In addition to that, what happens if you believe that your God will hold your sin against you when you fail? What happens then? Well, what happens then is that you believe that God rejects you. He rejects you. He has turned his back on you. He will have Nothing to do with you. He will not accept you. He will not love you. He will not intervene in your life in a positive way. There are many different ways that people describe the rejection of God because of their sin. But inherently, what really happens is that the individual is not accepted by their God. And so the individual will then have to turn to the world in order to obtain acceptance because they can no longer get it from their God because of their sin. They will turn to the world in order to get a temporary reprieve or a break in order to relieve some of the pressure that they're going to be under because God rejects them so much. They could very easily turn to the world for a temporary sense of acceptance until they get their act together. And when they do, they will commit sin. This is another way that sin will be stirred up within an individual through the law. It happens when a person violates the law doesn't fulfill the law, they failed to do so, they believe God rejects them, and as a result, they could easily end up in a life of sin. So these are different ways that this verse can be understood or interpreted. I'm not absolutely certain what Paul was intending to say, and so I'll give you both possibilities. One, that the law was given in order to resolve transgressions to the extent that we could. The other, that the law was given in order to stir up more transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now, the idea was, from God's point of view, that once the seed came, once the Messiah came, then everyone, hopefully, would turn to the Messiah. And that should be the end of the law, that the people would turn to him and they would see that he would provide them with forgiveness. That forgiveness would set them free From the law, not so that they could go out and indulge their flesh, because now they can say, look, the law no longer has any authority over my life, and so you can no longer perform execution or expect restitution or expect sacrifice. I have been set free from that. No, that's not what it was for. It was so that you could be set free from the sin that the law stirs up within your heart. That is what I believe our God expected, that a person would then turn to the Messiah and be set free from the sin that the law stirs up in a person's heart. They could then rest in the inheritance that was given to them through the Messiah, receive the inheritance, use the inheritance, enjoy the inheritance, allow that to be incorporated within their life experience and allow the living God to do a work in their heart through the inheritance that he has given to them so that they could use the inheritance and he could use the inheritance so that he could do a transformation 
within an individual. That is what I believe the Messiah was given for, so that a transformation could then occur within the new creation that God would make as a result of his death and resurrection. Now again, in verse 19, it says, "...till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator." In verse 20, now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. In verse 20, he says that God is one. God is one, and so if the mediator is mediating, he is not mediating for the one for God. He doesn't need to be a mediator on God's behalf. He is a mediator on behalf of everyone else. That means us, not God. He is a mediator who mediates on behalf of everyone. The entire scope of humanity requires a mediator. Everyone who has ever existed in the history of humanity requires a mediator. And Jesus is the mediator between us and God. What is the mediation? The mediation is simple. When an accusation is made about our sin... He mediates on our behalf and says, I died for that. I provided forgiveness for that. That has been resolved. That has been dealt with. That is over. That is no longer an issue. That's the kind of mediation that he does. He doesn't make any apologies on our behalf. He doesn't ask for forgiveness on our behalf. He declares that it has already been taken care of. Who is making the accusations? Who is it that makes the accusations? The devil and his angels make these accusations. Now, when the devil and his angels make these accusations, they can make these accusations to God or to you. Those are the two options. If they make the accusation to God or they bring it before God, then Jesus will resolve it simply. But if the demon brings it to you, then what happens? Then you are condemned. And you know what? They're right. You did sin, more than likely. They are probably telling the truth. I know that might sound a little bit awkward, but yes, the devil and his angels can tell the truth and use the truth. And your only defense is to simply acknowledge that and say, yes, that is true. And That is why I need the forgiveness and the mercy of God. And that's where it should end. But what I want you to see in this description of verse 20 is that the angels who are intervening in our lives are not necessarily those of the angelic host of God. They could very well be the demons themselves. And Jesus is the mediator between the demons, the devil, and our God on our behalf. He is the mediator. So again, from that point of view, let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 again. Beginning in verse 19, it says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. What angels? 
the law was appointed through the angels, the angelic host of God. I do believe that they were participants. But they don't have to be the only participants because the demons use the law also. They use the law in order to condemn people, in order to declare the truth that we are evil, that we should be embarrassed before our God, that we should be ashamed. That is the truth. So these angels could very well have been empowered by God in order to drive us to the point of recognizing our need for his mercy. The demons can easily be used by God. He can empower them. He can give them the weapon of the law, which I believe he did. He gave them the weapon of the law to condemn us, to beat us, to do whatever is necessary to drive us to the point of despair so that we would turn to him for his grace and mercy. From the demon's point of view, from the devil's point of view, it could be different. They could look at it differently. They could look at it not as the means of driving people to God, but instead as a means of driving people away from God, which is what happens in many cases when a person is unwilling, for example, to receive forgiveness and mercy, then certainly they are going to be driven further and further away from God. So they may look at it from this point of view. Well, it is true that the law may drive some people to the living God. That's true. The law may be used in order to drive people to the living God. However, the majority of people will probably be driven further away from God. And so from the demon's point of view, from the devil's point of view, it might be a reasonable exchange. Lose a few, gain many. That's one way that they could look at it. I'm just speculating, of course. I'm speculating from the point of view that not only was the law given through the angelic host, but it was also given through the demonic host. And why would I consider this? I would consider this because this is exactly what happened when the law was given to Adam and Eve not to eat from that tree. It was then that the devil was empowered to kill humanity, to drive Adam and Eve away from God. That is the example that I would look to as the first and foremost example that would justify this as a possibility with regards to verse 19, that it was appointed through angels. The law was appointed through the demonic angels that our God used them in this way, in addition to the angels of the angelic host. So continuing into verse 20, it says, Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Is the law against the promises of God? Is there something wrong with the law? Is the law going to take away the promise that God made to Abraham? Absolutely not, because... It dealt with other issues. It dealt with another problem. It dealt with something else. It had no relationship to the promise to Abraham outside of it being used in order to drive individuals to the point of realizing that they would have a need for the fulfillment of that promise that he made to Abraham. That is the connection between the law and the spirit. But continuing in verse 21, it says, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, 
truly righteousness would have been by the law. Righteousness would have been by the law if there was a law that was given that would have given life. So what does Paul say to these people? He says, listen, you folks may have decided, you may have chosen to live your life according to the law, but what does that have to do with the Messiah? What does that have to do with the restoration of the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam? What does that have to do with now living in the new resurrected life that we have been resurrected into? What does that have to do with it? It has nothing to do with it. If it had anything to do with it at all, there would have been a law given that would say, if you obey, I will resurrect you. And there is no law that suggests that, that says anything about that. Folks, isn't this clear? Isn't this understandable? That the law said nothing about the restoration of the Holy Spirit. Says nothing about it at all. So why would you be so surprised to suggest that the restoration of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with the law? Why would it be so much of a surprise? If the law has nothing to do with it, then why would we say that it has something to do with the law? It doesn't make any sense. They are disconnected. They are joined only by the dividing point of a person recognizing that they have a need to be saved. That was the purpose of the law, to show a person that they need to be saved. It serves us today in the same way, even though Jesus already died and rose from the dead, even though he has already provided the Holy Spirit. People don't know that they have a need for the Holy Spirit. They don't know that they have a need for forgiveness, not in the way that the law will show them. And so for those who have not embraced their need for the absolute mercy of God, use the law. Use the law and let the angels use the law in order to beat the daylights out of them with, if necessary, to drive them to the point of realizing that they have no hope outside of the mercy of God. That is what the law was for. It was not given so that people could be resurrected. There is nothing in the law that says if you will obey his commandments, you will know your God. How about that? It doesn't say that you will know your God. So what would you prefer if you had to choose? Would you prefer getting your flesh under control, which is the most that you can possibly achieve through your pursuit of the law, outside, of course, of the blessings that he may provide, if you do succeed in obeying all of the commandments, then, of course, he'll provide you with plenty of flour in your kneading bowl. He will provide you with victory in war, things like that. But will you know him? No, not a chance. He doesn't say anything about that. Will you receive the Holy Spirit that was lost in Adam? No, it doesn't say anything about that at all. It was assumed by the rabbis that the spirit of life would be restored to an individual who studied and lived according to the law. That was an assumption. That's true. I can provide a significant amount of historical evidence that would show very clearly that that's what they believed. But it was a false assumption because it doesn't say that in the law. God never said it. For somebody else to say that puts that individual in the position of telling God what he's going to do or what he's not going to do. That puts us in the position of power to dictate to God 
how we are going to have a relationship with him or how we are not going to have a relationship with him. If we are or if we are not, if he is going to resurrect us or if he is not. And that is not what our God is doing in this world that he has created. Again, in verse 21, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life Truly righteousness would have been by the law, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. When we are righteous, we are righteous because we believe, not because we are obedient. And this was the dividing issue between Paul and the others who were coming out of Jerusalem. The others who were coming out of Jerusalem were telling people that they needed to be obedient to be right with God. And Paul said, you must believe as Abraham believed. If you will believe, then you are right with God because that is what he seeks. He is not interested in people attempting to get their flesh under control, knowing full well that they won't. He wants people to believe him to know him, to be alive to him, to be resurrected and to live in the newness of life, to receive the inheritance and live in the inheritance. And the law has nothing to do with these things. So at this point, you have a choice. You have a choice. Are you going to pursue a relationship with your God, a knowledge of your God, a living experience with your God? Or are you going to turn to the law with hope, because that's all you can possibly have is hope, a hope that will not be fulfilled, but it is a hope that you will be able to get your flesh under control. If in some way, for some reason, it was possible for you to live in obedience to the law, what would you hope to achieve? What would you hope to gain? Do you think God is going to respond to you, that he's going to just simply give you anything you ask for, things like that, you are never going to be able to be God in order to demand that he respond. This will never happen. You will live your life devoted to nothing and will never know your God. And I will continue with this in the next program. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net 